When it comes to fixing the nationwide problem of health economics, we have to look at why is our spending so far out of control? We also have to take a look at the role of the patient, the role of the provider, the impacts of risks and insurance. How do we design benefits and what do we pay for and in what ways can we reform the way that we pay for services? These are not simple questions, but my guest today is really trying to find the cross-section between functional medicine and community-based care in a way that pays for itself before a patient is ever going to need drugs or surgery. Let's get into it. This is The Lindsay Elmore Show. Welcome to The Lindsay Elmore Show a podcast for people who deserve to be healthy with honest, open, and enlightening conversations with doctors, thought leaders, creatives, and spiritual gurus. You'll walk away with simple and tangible tips and tricks that allow you to live your healthiest life so you can pursue your dreams, overcome obstacles, and leave your mark. On a mission to flatten the curve of healthcare costs, James Maskell has spent the past decade innovating at the cross-section of functional medicine and community. To that end, he created the Functional Forum, the world's largest integrative medicine conference with record-setting participation online and growing physician communities around the world. His organization and best-selling book of the same name, Evolution of Medicine, prepares healthcare professionals for the new era of personalized participatory medicine. His new project, Heal Community, follows his second book, The Community Cure, and it makes it easy for clinics and health systems to deliver lifestyle-focused care effectively and frictionlessly. He is an in-demand speaker and impresario featured on TEDMED, HuffPost Live, TEDx, as well as lecturing internationally. He lives in the Sierra Nevadas with his wife and two daughters. James Maskell, welcome to the Lindsay Elmore Show. I'm psyched to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here because I think that there aren't enough people talking about functional medicine. And oftentimes people feel like they're at a dead end of not knowing where to find a functional medicine practitioner, where to find a community of people who are in functional medicine. And you have gone about creating integrative medicine conferences. You are looking to create communities of people who truly want to heal together. What got you into this work and what inspired you to just say there's got to be a different solution than what people are currently being offered great uh Lindsay, thanks for having me and uh look i love your irreverent style and, and your take on health and so this is great i mean uh be following along like it, i mean i knew that there was a different way of doing health because i was the weird kid who grew up with a different way of doing health and so i had a chiropractor and a homeopath and you know that was my my world. And I didn't really realize that that was weird until I got to school and realized that no one else did it like that. And I was like, certainly like a one-off in in uh, my education. 
Then I did a degree in health economics. And in that moment realized, you know, we're going off a cliff, uh, both in the UK where I grew up and the US where I've lived for the last 18 years and was born in both situations, like the, the amount of money that's going to be spent on healthcare in our lifetime continues to go up so exponentially on the back of chronic illness, right? On the back of most people having a chronic illness and then most people treating it with a drug first approach. And I just recognized that we were sort of doomed if we followed that trajectory. And so, you know, after a moment of clarity, 18 years ago, I quit my first job after university and moved to America with the first, and the first question that I really wanted to understand is, is chronic disease reversible? And then for the last 18 years, you know, been a mission to understand, is it reversible? Under what circumstances is it reversible? Who's reversing it? And then for the last few years, the, the question has been more, how can we reverse it at the scale that it exists? And that's been the sort of the journey with the consistent theme. So talk to us about what have been your conclusions along the way and, and, and really include some of the times that you were like, ooh, I think this is the answer. And then you learned something else and realized like maybe there's more to the story. Absolutely. Yeah. So look, I, I worked my first job. I worked for a guy. He was a naturopathic doctor in Georgia. I moved to Georgia from England, 24 years old. And I worked in a clinic. I was front desk and I was sales and I was like learning the business. And I saw people reverse their chronic illness, right? So it didn't happen in one appointment, but over three months, six months, 12 months, you know, this person is now like visibly different, not just off their medication, but visibly different you know, so happy and enthralled that they're no longer like, you know, in the grips of chronic illness because it could be extremely painful, isolating, anxiety producing, all of those things. So seeing like a visible transformation in people. Um, so that was the first thing. And then, you know, then going, my second job was actually serving health professionals who were practicing in this new way. And, you know, at the beginning, I thought there was only one way to do it. This guy, you know, who I'd worked with, who was doing, you know, now what I appreciate is sort of on the very like more esoteric end of the natural medicine spectrum, right? We think conventional medicines over here and like long distance energy healings over here in between, you've got functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, homeopathy, whatever. There's like a spectrum. He was, he was more over here. And, you know, I guess what I got excited about when I came across functional medicine was one, there was enough you know, hard science, emerging hard science to sort of sh show that these ideas were thoughtful. I could see that actual physicians were, you know, starting to uptake some of these ideas, which before that it had been kind of niche. And I would say, you know, I, I've been in the service of trying to spread functional medicine for a long time. I guess a big, a big conclusion that I came to a few years ago is that it is definitely possible if you have the means, the time, the energy, and the inclination to reverse 90% of chronic illnesses, right? It takes the patient, the person to want to participate, but like part of the work that I've done is made it easier for doctors to make the switch out of conventional medicine, start their own practice. And when I started, there was very few of these practices. Now there's one in every town. So I feel I don't take complete credit for it, but I had an end in it. Um, but I've also come to the conclusion that that model can't get us where we need to go. Like it can't reverse chronic illness at the scale that is necessary to actually achieve the mission that I set out on, which is to sort of bend the curve of healthcare costs. And so a new model was was needed. And that's what I've been sort of focused on the last 
four or five years is is to think about what out of that is scalable and then how can you deploy it in such a way that Medicare and Medicaid and commercial insurance can deploy it and it can it can work with the people that need it most. Okay, so I understand like that, you know, what we've done so far, getting it in individual clinics is great. We're seeing individuals reverse their chronic illness, but to do it at scale is a completely, completely different thing. So talk to us about how you go about looking at the economics of one patient and then showing how the economics of that one patient or those 10 patients could apply to 100,000 or a million patients so that we can see what is the true economic impact of this excessive spending that we have on healthcare. Great question. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad to nerd out on this kind of stuff. I mean, look, the, the, your classic chronic disease reversal in a functional medicine doctor's office has a number of things that hold it back from achieving scale. One is what percentage of doctors have seen the light right? That they need to actually practice an episode of medicine that has the even the potential of reversing chronic illness, right? You know, if you look at the um, the top 10 selling drugs in America, this was in Nature in 2015. If you look at the number needed to treat, which I saw you did a video on recently. So like that was like, I, I'm glad we get to talk about that. Very ineffective. One in four with something like Humira that costs $5,000 a month or you know, one in 24 for statin. And that's the number needed to treat, which is the basically the number of people you have to put on that drug to get one successful outcome, essentially. So, you know, drugs and drugs don't don't get people back. They're, it's a lifetime dependence. It's a management. So that's, you know, if you multiply the number of drugs that people need by the number of people with chronic illness, that's how you get this exponential curve. Right. The, the the trick is, can you get someone who's on the beginning of that curve and get them down to being completely healthy again? And that is possible in a functional medicine doctor's office. The problem is very few doctors, you know, are, are ready to think that there's some more education they need, need that they didn't get in medical school. And then practicing functional medicine in its first iterations required a lot of patient time, like a lot of face to face, because you have to one convince the patient that they need to actually fully participate in the medicine, right? So doing the fundamentals of health consistently. Second, you need to sort of deep dive into understanding how did they get here? We want to look at the root cause, and this is sort of the way that it's communicated, root cause medicine. What is the root cause and how do we get to cause? That takes taking a long history. It might take doing some other tests that your doctor wouldn't run. It may take some deeper interpretation of the test that your doctor has currently run. All of that takes a lot of time. And if you multiply that time, it's really difficult. It has been extremely difficult to manufacture that time in an insurance-based practice because that's the one thing you don't get. You get seven minutes, you get 15 minutes, you got to keep turning people over. And that's why the early days of the functional medicine movement were essentially doctors leaving the system, feeling a moral obligation to practice in a new way, in a way that could actually get someone to be self-efficacious, right, to a point where they don't need any medication or anything, and then just doing that because they feel, you know, obligated to do that once they know that it's possible. And then, but then ultimately what that leads to is like cash-based functional medicine practices that anyone can now access subject to having the funds and subject to, you know, having a life 
the life situation where you could do that. And we know that, you know, with the economy in decline, you know, there's also some limitations on that. So I would say, you know, millions of people search out this medicine, you know, every year now because podcasts and books and summits and all these things have really, you know, pushed forward this idea that it's capable and it's possible. And there's so many walking examples in every community. And yet it's been inaccessible to the vast majority of, of the community um, who, you know, who need it but can't access it. It's interesting as well. You bring up some statins, I think, are a fairly controversial drug. I think people are kind of waking up to the fact of like, well, wait a minute, we've had statins for 30 years and we have no less heart disease than we did when they first came out. Another thing that goes into the health economics of a drug like Humira, most, you know, most highest grossing, highest grossing drug in the history of all drugs. The thing that gets me is that we've never looked at head to head. What is the number needed to treat and the number needed to harm compared to the cheap old drug methotrexate that had been used for years and years and years to treat rheumatoid arthritis before Humira ever came to market. And so, and then if you say, all right, well, we've got this number needed to treat, which is how many how many people do I have to give the drug to to prevent one person from having that dastardly outcome? The number needed to harm is how many people have to take the drug to have that dastardly side effect is basically what we're looking at. But then you can actually assign a differential cost to each of those and come down to, well, yeah, we're getting three more patients healed, and these are made up numbers, but we're getting three or 30 or 300 patients healed, but it's costing us in excess of 300,000, 3 million, whatever the numbers are. When we look at these head to have drugs of these older drugs versus the newer drugs. Now, Health Can I just say the reason why the reason why they don't do that analysis is because, you know, if you look at what happens when someone goes on Humira, you know, what is their drug use profile three years later? On average, it's like five other drugs because ultimately shutting down the immune system for any period of time is going to have negative externalities. And it's obvious if you think about it through just like a oh, let me see how the body works, and if you turn off this pathway for this long, what happens? But if you do that kind of analysis with all the externalities, it doesn't really look that good. And so I think that's part of the reason why you do it. I mean, the obvious examples also recently have been like, what is the need, number needed to treat versus the number need, you know, number needed to harm for the COVID vaccines, you know, render the RSV vaccines that just came out as well. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, that they're, 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 you, if you do that kind of analysis, it doesn't end up looking that good. And that's why, you know, part of what stood me in good stead, I think, when the when the um, pandemic came along is because I'm very skeptical already of like uh, things like relative risk reduction, you know, very easy to gain those kind of statistics. And that's the statistics that we saw coming out a lot in the pandemic. And you need to really get into the number needed to vaccinate, you know, and then you see it's a sort of a different story. Yeah, I, I um, always encourage people whenever we hear the like, whatever medication, whatever vaccine is 99% effective, 98% effective. My first question that I want people to take a step back and ask is at doing what? 
It's 95% effective at doing what? Because this is especially important for oncology research, right? Where we have these blockbuster drugs that cost 50, 60, 70, $100,000. And it's like 95% effective at, you know, keeping people in remission. For how long? Because oftentimes it's six weeks. And so is going through a drug treatment protocol that is going to cause you to have 15 massive side effects, each of which requires, maybe half of which requires another medication, is that worth the extension of life of six weeks in remission? And that is an individual patient choice. It's just, I don't think that we're equipping patients with the real understanding of how to make an informed decision at this time. And so I want to talk a little bit more about skepticism, the pandemic, and just how did the pandemic change you? Very good question. Well, um, you know, one interesting thing was the sort of multi-directions that my world went in the in the face of the pandemic, right? So on one end, you've got like, um, you know, well, on one, like it, it, it refers to the spectrum of people that are in the functional medicine movement, right? So on one end, you've got like, um, I would say people going to one very end of the spectrum, which is basically like COVID doesn't exist. They've never proved that a virus exists. It hasn't, you know, gone through Cox postulates and they're still hanging out at that end there. Then on the other end, you've basically got like, do whatever we're told. We've got to take care of people, you know, as we've seen from Lyme and EBV, you know, there are long-term consequences to getting the virus. And so we're the people that know how to do that. We know you've got to stay, you know, reduce it as much as possible. And so you have sort of the split and then you have people in the middle that are sort of like, well, we already know that like, you know, the best way to um, take care of yourself is to improve your healthy behaviors and, you know, exercise and take care of yourself. And that over time, it'll become, you know, less, um, less deadly because that's what viruses do. And so, you know, take care of yourself now, but start to build healthy resilience. And there was a whole spectrum there. And I felt myself actually being pulled in all three directions because I could empathize with all three of those uh, positions. And I also then, you know, have my, um, you know, friends who took those different positions over time, though, um, especially as the data came out almost straight away from like Sweden and showed the age differential where basically like old people, you know, in big trouble, but like young people, almost nothing, you know, um, my sort of libertarian, uh, I guess, side really started to take over where I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, excited about what I see happening at the school. I'm not seeing, uh, you know, what the plan is with kids, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So to answer your question, like I moved to the countryside, I took my kids out of school and I started a school alternative for like-minded parents that wanted to have holistic education and didn't want any part of what the school thing became. Um, so I, I took care of myself and my family and made those choices in that direction. You know, over time, I would say, you know, being kind of in the middle. Like, I don't really know enough about virology to know whether or not, you know, COVID has followed Cox postulates. I don't pretend to be an expert in that. But what I did know from the beginning is that, like, authoritarianism doesn't solve the viral illness, and we need to resist that at all costs. And secondly, that, you know, and this goes back to the conversation we were just having before, is that 100% clear 
healthy people have much better outcomes with the virus. In fact, on April the 4th, 2020, I was part of a webinar with the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute and Dr. Ari Vojdani, who's like a leader in functional medicine forever, basically the godfather of modern um, you know, immunity and autoimmunity, he predicted on April the 4th what kind of patients would have a harder issue with COVID across the spectrum and what to look for. And he was right. He was right 100%. And ultimately, what I would say is, if you have predictive power, right, if you can predict what's about to happen with something that's novel, like COVID-19, what that says is that you have a better model. And so to come back to the question you were asking before, I believe that if every human had informed consent about the about health and how it works and chronic disease and all of that, every patient, every person would go for a lifestyle first root cause approach as the first standard of care and only to come to conventional medicine as it now is as a third, fourth or fifth um, option. And that model has already been postulated. There's a model called the therapeutic order, which I talked about in my second book, which actually shows a sort of an ordering of care whereby which the most costly, most invasive interventions come last. And we start always with the least costly, least invasive interventions, which looks like, you know, the social determinants of health, sleeping properly, turning on the healing mechanisms, nutrition, you know, um, those kind of therapies. So this thought has happened before. I'm not the first person to have it, but I think the, for me, the pandemic really um, cemented that this is absolutely what needs to happen at every moment, especially in this kind of, in this kind of moment of, uh, of a pandemic. I love that because it seems just so reasonable and I would love to talk a little bit more about the differences in medical care in the United States versus in the UK, um, because we started the conversation by you saying they're both going off a cliff. They're both they're both not going the right direction. But in a lot of ways in the United States, we start with the most expensive stuff first, and then we go back and try to chase our tails when we've made a worse decision from the get-go. And so we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Happiness is now available on the go. The Happy Juice Pack is now available with Mentabiotics, Energy Plus, and Edge all in easy to carry stick packs. It's the happy juice that you know and love. It's filled with targeted probiotics, prebiotics, and phytobiotics that help with mental wellness. It also supports our mood and our motivation. It helps with our second brain function in our gut, improves mental performance, and provides fuel for a highly productive day. It has all natural nootropics that help with our motivation and that get up and go. It's available with or without caffeine, helping you to support mental energy and physical performance. All you do is mix together one of the mentabiotic stick packs with one of the Amare Edge grape stick packs with your Energy Plus, and Happy Juice can now be taken anywhere 
on the go. Head over to lindsayelmore.com slash amare to save $10 on the Happy Juice on the Go pack. That's lindsayelmore.com slash amare to save $10. And now let's get back to the show. I'd love to hear, you know, tell us a little bit more about what medical practice is in the UK versus the United States. What are the similarities? What are the differences? And why has it been your conclusion that both models are not going the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. So there are differences and there are similarities. The similarities are they both a pharmaceutical first approach, you know, the, the standard of care you know, and the pharmaceutical companies have essentially like affected the standard of care through, you know, um, their efforts so that pharmaceuticals are the first standard of care in both. Um, ultimately, what that leads to, you know, both have health metrics that are like falling off the cliff, right? It's getting way worse. America is uniquely costly. Um, England has had, you know, the NHS for 70 years, which is an incredible institution and you know it, there, if you if i went back into my health economics training at that moment the nhs scored number one on access price affordability all these things in the world because essentially it's all free at point of care so you know there's benefits to that is anyone can get that care the problem is you're getting your pharmaceutical first approach as your plan and that's led to you know a gro- no, no halt in the growth of chronic illness right which is which is problematic you know, the, the problem in England is what, what that led to is a complete lack of innovation. So the UK the UK is a decade or two behind on functional medicine because everyone expects medicine for free. You know, no doctors really have an um, uh, innovation uh, incentive. And, you know, right now you're seeing a catastrophic uh, issues in the UK. So when I was over there last summer, as an example, um, if you like, if you have the worst kind of issue in your home, I, I think like a you know a proper injury, the you know the ambulance is meant to take six minutes. It was taking eight. If you have a second level emergency, which is like having a baby or a heart attack, it's meant to be ten minutes. It was fifty nine minutes. True, right? So, and that's the NHS just being like it's so gunked up with chronic illness, people showing up in the emergency room showing up in GP clinics, it can't deal with the acute things as effectively. So you just have way too many sick people and you have a limited capacity. You also have doctors leaving left, right and center because they're, you know, they're just so fed up with the system. So they've got a real problem in the UK in that, like, um, that, you know, that, that, that system is, is sadly, really sadly breaking down. And I have my own thoughts about what could solve it, but that's not for today in America you have a much more expensive system because you just have a hodgepodge of all these systems and all these different payers, right? So you have, you know, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, government payer and workers' comp and, and, you know, the VA, which is sort of like government. Then you have commercial insurance, um, you know, which is a big, you know, is, is the most profitable industry of all time and only got more profitable since Obamacare. And then you've got like private pay and those kind of things. So, you know, you get a different types of payers. You have all very small systems that are all delivering their local hospital or otherwise. And so it's more of a mess and it's harder to work around. It's way more expensive. But on the other side of that, because people are used to paying for care, the innovation in care is much stronger in America. And I would say America has the most innovative um, 
when it, the most innovation when it comes to trying out these new ideas. So there's more functional medicine doctors here than anywhere. There are functional medicine clinics that now have, you know, 24 seven across all 50 states where you can sign up for 150 bucks a month and have access to that highest standard of care. And now some of that is available on insurance. So I would say there are parts of it where um, it's quite exciting because there's more innovation than there is over there. But in both cases, the costs are going like this. Who will burden those costs is different in each country, but they're both disasters. And in both cases, you know, there will be some sort of cataclysmic fiscal event as a result of everyone being chronically ill. And another thing, you know, you've mentioned twice now that America is uniquely costly and it is because we are so heavily burdened, um, but it's also because we have no governmental oversight of drug pricing. And so it just it just is it, we allow drug companies to charge whatever they want for for medications as long as they want. And we're starting to see a little bit of that change in the past couple of weeks where they've got a collection of drugs where they're trying to negotiate drug pricing. However, I mean, you mentioned Obamacare. There's there, it's it's slid in there in Obamacare that the government doesn't have much power to negotiate drug pricing. And as they're approaching negotiating these new drug prices to simply get medications that these drug companies say are life-saving and life-altering and disease-reversing and whatever they say into people's hands, and the drug companies are fighting it absolutely left and right and tooth and nail. And so... Um, what do we do? I mean, what what do we do to to shift this? It's not even a ship at this point. It's a barge. Like it's a barge going through the Panama Canal. How do you turn it around? Yeah, well, um, there's a lot of thoughts on that. Like, first of all, individually, right? We can all work out how to, you know, how to have a dramatic shift in our own resilience. Right. And and I've talked about, you know, we're working on some systemic things, which is essentially like group functional medicine visits that are paid for by Medicare and Medicaid and, and working on that. But like yeah, each person as an individual, you know, you can in the book, The Community Cure that I wrote, and I'm happy to give all of your listeners like free access to listen to the audio books. I kept the rights to it because I wanted to, you know, to, to give it to everyone. But in that, I tell many stories of people outside of the healthcare system that realize they all have the same issue and just band it together to work together to reverse their chronic illness. Easy example, you know, 5,000 lonely men with heart disease in Detroit who started the plant-based nutrition support group where they're all trying to eat healthy together and by getting together and eating healthy together and cooking out together, they're getting great health outcomes with their heart disease and it's happening outside of the doctor's offices and it's free. Right. So that's just one example of what's possible when people realize that, you know, the, the, the community is the cure, essentially, you know, that's, that's that way. So I think each individually, you know, we can, we can work to improve our own resilience and there's plenty of ideas in the book on how to do that. And then there's things coming along the way that, that we're working on. I would say at the bigger level, the most exciting thing that I see on the horizon is that finally, after 10 years of like bullshitting about it, a lot of medicine is moving to capitation, which is essentially that instead of getting paid for every drug that you give or every you know visit that you see, you get a fixed amount of money per patient. And therefore, it actually now incentivizes chronic disease reversal. It incentivizes people being healthy. 
And that is leading to a whole bunch of new services being innovated where the goal is self-efficacy, where the goal is getting people off medication. And I'm in that world right now. And so, you know, as an example, 30,000 patients in a capitated Medicare Advantage plan, you know, in in South Florida, and essentially their medical uh, director is coming to me and say, look, if you can keep people out of the ER, if you can keep them for admission, if you can get them off their medication, we'll buy as much as you have for it because that's how we make money. And so I think all the people that have been innovating, you know, um, in the in the in the niches, part of my plan here for the next five years is to take that innovation and sort of connect it to the market who wants to buy that, so that you know a health plan or a, an organization could buy an episode of dementia reversal or lupus reversal or diabetes reversal, and there would be benefits to everyone for that happening, apart from pharma. <laughs> Okay, so this is a new concept for our for our listeners. Um, explain to us in like the most basic of models, what is capitation and like what might that look like with thirty thousand people who are like, okay, we've got this block of people. They all want to reverse Alzheimer's disease. Explain what that means. It basically means that the insurance company, in this case Medicare, for this clinic, instead of giving the thirty thousand. Uh, patient specialty group, um, you know, money for each appointment they had. They give them a chunk of money every year, but that's all they get. And essentially, you know, if their patients end up in emergency rooms or in, you know, other higher cost uh, stuff, that comes out of that budget. And then all of the care that they deliver across primary care, you know, um, cardiology, rheumatology, all goes into that pie. So let's say 30,000 people you know, $10,000 per person, you know, each, um, you know, let's say that's uh, $300 million, right? That they're, you know, that they're, um, that they're now getting. So they get $300 million. And if they deliver all of that care for $250 million, they make $50 million. If they deliver it for $290 million, they make $10 million. If it goes over, they're losing money. So that's the, that's the game that is being played to try and like, essentially cap the amount of money that gets paid so that now the incentives switch over. And that's happening more and more. There are great success stories like Isa Permanente is one example where that's a fully capitated, fully self-insured model. You know, all employers have that incentive, the self-funded employers, because they have to pay for all of the costs of all their employees. Typically, they've if they get big enough, they disengage from, you know, normal insurance and then are self-insured and so they'll do anything to avoid people going to the emergency room you know getting into these high episodes of care um costs of care and so anything that can reverse chronic illness can now be you know incentivized in the right direction i okay i think i think our listeners are going to understand that where you have x amount of money and how you spend it is up to you but if you spend it judiciously and wisely on the things that are a root cause approach, then you're going to end up not spending the big bills on the hospital admissions, on the surgeries, on the emergency room visits, and on the, on the ambulance rides and such. I want to go back. Why do you think community-based cares are so effective? The number one thing is that when people help each other, everyone wins and it doesn't cost anything, right? So if you and me become accountability buddies and we both have 
type 2 diabetes and we call each other every day to see what we've eaten and, and how our day's been, that costs you nothing, that costs me nothing, but it'll be incredibly healthy for both of us. And, you know, I've seen that in the minutiae where I've had, you know, my mother-in-law lost a hundred pounds once in Overeaters Anonymous. And all she did was had to talk to someone every day about what she'd eaten. That's one example on that end. I mentioned the example, you know, of the plant-based nutrition support group, but, you know, there's other examples in the book of like whole health, uh, whole congregations of churches now holding each other accountable to doing new healthy behaviors and losing, you know, a quarter of a million pounds across 15,000 people by, you know, just supporting each other. It costs nothing. It's valuable to both the mentor and the mentee and the whole collaborative. So that's a force that we are using to 0% of its potential that if we unleashed it at some reasonable potential, you know, could, uh, could really dramatically change uh, health outcomes. And that's why I've been, you know, really committed to, you know, one way or another for a decade. So talk to us about your individual trajectory, because sometimes I think when people come on the show, our listeners have to think, oh, my gosh, they've got it all figured out. They're they're They know all the things. They found all the things. What are you currently working on in your life to even further your health and wellness journey? Oh, man, there's a lot. You know, I I I think, um, you know, one of the things that I've always struggled with is just unconscious eating right mm-hmm. where i'm just like doing something else and eating and suddenly like i mean five thousand calories or whatever you know in one se- setting so being more conscious about that and and um you know it's been a, a process for me um i found like being consistently motivated to exercise has been really tricky for me and i found again the the solution to that has been community like I know the people at my CrossFit well enough now that I feel accountable to them to come in in a way that I haven't been accountable to myself. You know, I'm also part of a a men's group that I've been part of here for four years now because I recognize that like I had a lot of professional accountability, like, you know, I've I've owned businesses and I've, you know, uh, I've run those kind of businesses, but I didn't have any like personal accountability. Like I'm an only child and you know, I kind of recognized there was a certain like level of, uh, what would you say, emotional immaturity where I just kind of did whatever I want, whenever I want. And that wasn't, that was bumping up against being married and being a father and trying to like, you know, do all the things. And so I've been in a group for the last four years of, you know, emotionally mature men, most of whom are older than me. And so when I come across situations in my life that are, you know, tricky to deal with, you know, to have a community of men who, you know, who have been there, who have experienced it and who are holding out and in agreement about me living to my highest potential is, is transformational. And again, that thing's free. You know, that's not, that doesn't cost anyone anything. It's not a medical thing that I've seen people quit smoking and get sober and lose weight and whatever in that, in that, in that container. So, you know, I'm, I'm fully engaged with community as medicine and looking at every corner of it to determine what works for me and what can help me get where I'm trying to go. And, um, and, uh, I'm also, you know, doing it all day, every day in, in my work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, before we close out, I'd love to hear what you perceive as the evolving role of a pharmacist in modern, in modern healthcare delivery. And how do you think times are changing for pharmacists? 
Yeah, well, that's it's interesting because I was, you know, I was I was really excited to connect with you. I mean, I I started following you, and then I realized that you were a pharmacist, and that was that was uh, that was exciting. So, you know, if you asked me ten years ago, who are the least likely profession to get involved in in this movement? Pharmacists would probably be number one, right? Because they're trained really in in drugs and they deliver drugs. And ultimately, I was kind of coming to the realization that that was part of the problem. But, you know, over the last 10 years, what I've come to recognize is one, pharmacists have a ton of trust. Two, pharmacists are often, you know, at the center of a whole polypharmacy situation, right? Where different doctors are prescribing different things. And they're really the only people, you know, sort of, um, advocating for their patient because they recognize like the cardiologist doesn't know that the neurologist has prescribed this and these two things don't go well together. So there's a role in there naturally for sort of de-prescribing when polypharmacy issues come up. And then, you know, obviously you have this sort of the business side of it as well, where the independent pharmacy, you know, struggles to make enough money delivering prescriptions because you're only making a buck or less, you know, for every prescription that you, that you can give out. And so over the last few years, you know, through my work with the evolution of medicine, I've had the opportunity to interview pharmacists, essentially sort of grabbing the reins of building community centers where people can get healthy. And what does that look like? I remember one, just to give you the visual, it's like the drugs are at the back, the supplements are the middle and the vegetables are at the front, right? And you only have to go as far back as you need to because if you've got all the vegetables going on and you're taking the supplements, you probably don't need to be, you know, going all the way back to the, you know, to the drugs. So, you know, that that has given me um, a lot of excitement on my podcast recently. I had the CEO of a network of 70 pharmacies across Wisconsin where all of their 100 pharmacists are all trained in lifestyle medicine, are all trained on deep prescribing, are all trained on... Um, uh, medication induced nutrient depletion. And, you know, that is, uh, that is extremely promising. If we want to create a revolution where people do healthy things first and only use drugs last. And so I've actually, oh, I got a bit excited there. I've actually come to the conclusion that pharmacists can play a very, very critical role in transforming healthcare. And that's why like every year for the last four years, I've gone to a conference, which was for functional medicine, trained pharmacists, and I've just been excited to see um, the potential of that profession to really play a significant role in the evolution of medicine. I love it. You guys go and check out jamesmaskell.com. And like he mentioned, he is offering a copy of his free audiobook. It is over and available at thecommunitycure.com slash audio book go and check it out the communitycure.com slash audiobook and you can go and follow james on all kinds of social media platforms always putting out good stuff james maskell thank you so much for coming in and being a guest today on the lindsey elmore show lindsey i just want to acknowledge you know um i just want to acknowledge the the content that you put out the the voice that you that you offer into the world is super valuable i feel really aligned to it i feel really connected to it and I'm really um, grateful for the opportunity to connect with your audience. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Kids Calm is officially here and it is time to stop fighting sleep and build better relaxation and wind down routines. 
Kids Calm is a melatonin-free, delicious, fruit-flavored gummy that both kids and adults will love. Instead of melatonin, it contains maisonol, which helps you to make your own melatonin, as well as 5-HTP, which helps you to make your own serotonin. It also has B vitamins like B12 and B6, as well as D vitamins that help with peace and relaxation. It has all the talking points that you want. It is sugar-free, caffeine-free, soy-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, doesn't have any preservatives, artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. What it does have is the ability to help children and teens have more calm and restful sleep. It can be given after homework, before bedtime, and it's not only going to help you to make your own melatonin and serotonin, but it also helps to level out GABA, which is our primary relaxatory neurotransmitter out there. You can get a two-pack of Kids Calm, or you can check out the Laid Back Kids Pack, which contains Kids Calm as well. Head to lindsayelmore.com slash amare to save $10 on your first order. That's lindsayelmore.com slash amare to get Kids Calm today. The Lindsay Elmore Show is written and produced by me, Lindsay Elmore. Show segments are produced by Sue Procco and Derek Lugo. Sound design and editing is by Jive Media. Support The Lindsay Elmore Show by heading to lindsayelmore.com slash podcast. Your contribution, no matter how big or how small, helps us to bring the best guests to the interview chair. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Share this and all of your favorite episodes with a friend and on social media. Be sure to tag at Lindsay Elmore Show and help us bring the pod to more people.